And as we go into this tonight, really we are kind of finishing up the very, what you can call the first section of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And as we think about the ending of that section, we'll probably move into something different for, for a while. And uh, that will give us a, a breather from Genesis for a little bit and kind of step back. But what we want to do is uh, tonight just think about how important these foundational chapters are. These first 11 chapters are very, very key to um, what we know about God. And I think what we want to get out of it too is not only seeing who God is in this and how man uh, is, is what does, like chapters 1 through 11, what do they mean to us, let's say, evangelistically? Thinking out as far as the culture is concerned. Uh, what about those efforts? How can we evangelize better? How can we get the good news across knowing these 11 chapters of Genesis? How can they help us? How can we confront a culture really, with this amazing story. Have you guys been amazed by this story? As I've gone through it, it's like, okay, I've heard this before, I know this, but every time you look into God's Word, you find out things that you really haven't really known before. And so you can say, okay, how can I confront the world out there that really is not concerned with creation? They don't even believe in creation the way that we would, a creation of man how man fell uh, in, into sin and um, how, that, how it happened, how sin enters into the world and how it spread all throughout the rest of the world. How about the judgment of God, not only in Adam and Eve, but then the judgment of God by a worldwide flood. We know the world as, as it would be would not believe that. That all sounds like a fairy tale in Noah's Ark. We, we've all discussed that through all these many uh, weeks and months as we've uh, uh, approached this in a, in a literal way. Um, he preserved the human race. What are they going to think when you, when you talk about a flood and then preserving the human race through eight people? Do we tell them about the human languages and how they developed Whenever they use evolution, evolution is pretty well the answer to most of all of this. Um, but we know, looking at chapter 10, when we discuss the Tower of Babel and the confusion that God caused and spread them out all over the, uh, the United States, <laughs> all over the world, um, out of that came nations and tribes, tongues, different, different languages. God did that. Now, a few years ago, D.A. Carson wrote a really significant book called The Gagging of God. And i got a feeling you probably have read that book. But you know about it, don't you? <laughs> D.A. Carson fan, right? And what, what that does is it confronts pluralism that's in our society, that's in our culture today. And it was a, a great analytical account, really, of what post what the postmodern world is, and how Christians then can give the gospel of grace, this good news, this, this great gospel that we have, to a generation that has absolutely rejected the very categories that we believe in. 
that they are totally on the opposite end. How do we do that? And in this book that he wrote, The Gagging of God, Christianity Confronts Pluralism, uh, he showed that, yeah, we have truth claims. They're from the Bible. What we've just read in these 11 chapters would be made fun of, laughed at by most of the people in the world today. Would you not say that? You'd have to agree with that, right? We can say, well, the Bible says, well, that's what we need to keep doing. Um, What Carson argues here is that to be an effective witness in the age that we live in, my, (laughs) what an age we live in, we have to go back to the Bible. We have to present our case just as the Bible does, right? As it's presented, we don't have to be fancy. We don't have to try to come up with something fantastic that's going to amaze them. What we have here is the truth. The Bible begins with what or who? God, right? God as Creator. That's just simple. I mean, it's, he just doesn't come on trying to argue about himself. In the beginning, God created. That's just the way it is. Why do we have to try to be more fancy than that? So the Bible presents God as Creator. So our presentation that we have is to explain who He is, what He has done, what He is doing now, what He will do. That's how we are to present. That doesn't sound like anything really new, is it? But it's pretty incredible. We're to explain how human beings are created in the image of God. And therefore, if we are created in the image of God, God being the Creator, then we are responsible to this God who made us in the image of Him. We're responsible for that in our actions. So we're supposed to be saying that, not only believing it, but that's part of our lives. So we have to tell this culture that here is where God has put us. The image of God. We're not gods, but we're made in the image of God. And then also to tell them we have fallen from such a high calling. What a high calling to be in the image of God. We need someone to rescue us from the situation that we're in. This total ruin. So the narrative line is going to run from the creation to the fall and then to the hope that we have and getting it into perspective of where we have been lately and where we're kind of heading into is uh, from when you think of Adam and Eve, then the fall, then of course you think of Noah, but you have to think of Abraham. And of course chapter 11 is pointing to, to the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to come through a line that is now getting very narrow. And he's going to show through a group of people that's going to be a nation he's going to work through him and there are other figures that of course come out of him you think of great figures like Moses right the lawgiver or or David the great king and then the prophets and they all come through that line they're all pointing to the work of Christ the Messiah so Carson keeps saying that we must present this God who was before the creation of the world give a characteristic of Him, and and then show where man is. We must know God, and we must know ourselves. Know God, and know who man is. And, of course, man is a sinner. He's in the need of a Savior. We must know, as we present this truth, that our world is fallen. Our world is 
spiritually ignorant. Our world is spiritually pagan as can be. The world was is like right now what it was right after the fall. And there's sinful man. Uh, we have to present the message as the Bible does. When Paul was in Athens, you find it in Acts 17, uh, a great presentation, and he presented the Creator God, who's not far from all of us. And so he narrowed it down, showed who this Creator God was, gave the Gospel, um, and, and the whole story. And it actually starts with God. That's really where we want to start everything. If, if we start out a Bible study, we, uh, a worship service, anything that we do, we always want to have God at the top. Anything in prayer, in song, preaching of the Word, God is always there, right? That's, that's our whole um, point uh, in being. He gets the glory. Then we want to appropriate this message of Genesis and appropriate it into an evangelistic message. They don't know. Matter of fact, some people may not have ever even heard of the ark. <laughs> I mean, that's how spiritually ignorant things have uh, gotten. Uh, it used to be a gimme that people used to at least say, yeah, yeah, I heard that in Sunday school. But we can't even take that anymore and, and know for sure they even know anything about that. Um, so, as we study the book of Genesis... I encourage you to continue to read it, to study it. I hope we've gotten a good handle from the very start of this Bible, grasping just these 11 chapters and taking them and making them be uh, deeply significant and very richly uh, giving us the ability to talk about Christ, even though you don't see the word uh, or the name Jesus Christ in here, we know that that's very well where it's set out and where it's pointing and what it's all going to be hitting to. It's pointing to the Redeemer, isn't it? We Man is in sin. Man has to be redeemed. He has to be rescued. So there's a specific line of people that God is going to use to get to this Messiah. And so these, these people are the, the, the nation and tribes that He's going to use for His Messiah to come into the world eventually. And the emphasis of chapter 7 is that as it goes through genealogies. Uh, We've seen the seed of the woman in chapter 3 of Genesis where you see the the sin happen. We see the son of man uh, being developed all through here. We see the son of Abraham or the son of David. Uh, Who is that? That's, That's the Messiah. That's, that's Christ, right? So, um, as we take the second half of chapter 11, and we'll probably use a verse or two of chapter 12 to um, get uh, a good synopsis here of what's going to happen in the, in the rest of the Bible. Uh, John Calvin said, if we weren't given this section, like for instance in chapter 11, especially starting at verse 10 through the rest of the chapter, if we were not given that, even though it's really names and years, and it doesn't say anything that was going on at that time, there's really not any historical accounts other than names, uh, basically. And he said, if we weren't given this, we would not know how much time intervened between the deluge, that's the flood, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. It could be it could be thousands of years. 
It could be millions of years. It could be billions of years. It could be trillions of years. As people still say, even with this lineup, and all it takes is simple addition, and the commentators that, uh, that I read, whether they be the reformers, such as Calvin, uh, Luther, or other people, they take this, and uh, you'll notice whenever they have children, they mark that down. They don't really allow anything in between other than what has been given here, and they take a, a literal approach. Uh, it's because in our times there, have, there are some good expositors that will take that. Others will say, well, listen, because of what modern science has come up with, uh, we must allow more years and more time to be in here. So as, they, as we go from one sun to the next sun, they tell you how long they live, there could be hundreds of years in there. That it could allow for some other ones in there, but... That complicates matters with what we have presented for us. But even if it did, it's not going to be multiple thousands and thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years uh, just because there's one name this. That that would not make sense with the rest of the Bible and with the rest of some of the genealogies are given. I'm not trying to argue that case, but what we're saying is that this chapter 10 and 11, even though it's giving not a lot of information doesn't seem like it's that important and I want to tell you it's extremely important because it's setting up the history of the line of the Messiah and it's actually in another sense it's cutting off the uh, you have Shem, Ham and Japheth it's more or less cutting off Ham and Japheth it's not saying no God is done with them but you don't get a lot of information from them from, from there on out other than their confrontations that they will have with the seed of Abraham. This is really that story that's going to go through there. So it pretty well cuts off Ham and Japheth as far as the Bible is concerned except for uh, the times whenever they, they have uh, situations where they meet up with the, the Semites. Uh, Shem, uh, the Semites are from Shem. Uh, that's one of the sons of Noah, right? The three sons. So God has laid this out where you have Noah. Then you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And of course, they have their wives. There are eight people. They populate the earth. We've talked about that. And so now the emphasis now has come up after you've had the dispersion of the Tower of Babel. The languages are confused. Almost nothing is revealed from, from God as far as the further history of mankind, as far as the tribes, we know they're, they're, they've migrated out there, there are cultures out there. We can kind of gather where most of them went, uh, where they were basically at. We talked about that. It uh, falls into place pretty well most of the time. Uh, the patriarchal genealogies were being preserved from the flood to the call of Abraham. Uh, and uh, that's why we say it's very important. And we remember that we talked about, I guess last week when we went into Romans 1, God gave them over to their lusts. And that can be at any time of mankind, but it very well could have been at the Tower of Babel, for instance. Or even before that, He God gives them over. Uh, but uh, this implies an abandonment uh, the wrath of God is whenever He removes Himself. This is one sense of the wrath of God. He just removes Himself and lets man do what they want to do. Uh, that's scary, isn't it? 
without God, of course, he's always over everything. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of this world. But he says, okay, you want to do that? Fine. I'm not going to restrain you. Go do it. And we see the result of that in Romans 1. And uh, uh, so you you have the Tower of Babel. Then he, he makes them go out. And then after that, it's almost like he turns it over to whatever they want to do. And they, they take their religions, the, uh, the paganism and such that they were learning already, and rather than having Him being grounded in the truth, rather than God being their God, they turned other things into gods. And, and you know this spiral, this downhill spiral. And the world will tell you, no, no. It's not a downhill spiral. We're going upward, right? It's the total opposite. It's on the, on the other end. And we know that when man moves away from God, he goes not upward, but downward. The truth of the matter is that that's what's happened. Unless God comes in and intervenes. Which, in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see God intervenes. After what could be a, a, a few hundred years a couple hundred years or so, God now is speaking to Abram. For a few hundred years, He didn't. We don't see anything recorded in His speech. We do see in 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 10 of chapter 11, these names. We don't really get much information from that other than they had children. It tells how long they lived and such. That's very helpful. And that's why we're making that point. This is very, very helpful. God is going to then take Abram in chapter 12, separate him from other people, moves him away from where he had been, and that's where the posterity of Shem uh, will um, exist and flourish. For the most part, even the Semites will apostatize just like from uh, Japheth and Ham. But there's still going to be some who will have true worship uh, from Shem. There was also another break that God had from revealing Himself to people uh, in the Old Testament. At the end of the, you have an intertestamental time period between the Old Testament and New Testament, 400 years where God did not speak. We have no recorded words from Him. And then you have John the Baptist's father. Uh, who comes on the scene and, and we get the, then the information of God intervening again where he we hear from Him. Uh, and, and, and isn't it good? It's been 2,000 years, basically. Uh, 1,900 years, something like that. Since we've had any re- uh, word from God as far as written information is, it's all right here. We have everything that God has ever given. Isn't it nice to know? Uh, but there was a 400-year break and um, no, no information from him. Um, things continued to go as they did, but uh, then we see uh, there's, there's a remnant of people that God has. He always has. Now, John Calvin, as he was commenting on this section starting at 10, we'll read this in a moment, he said this, the narrative of history, the narrative of history should have inspired men with no less terror than the visible appearance of God Himself. What's he saying here? Well, as we pick this up, in verse 10 it says, These are the records of the generations of Shem. 
Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Two years. I mean, that's about as specific as it can get. Uh, many people that we've, we've traced this with, we, uh, and, and we, we could be wrong, but I like the idea of the flood being 1,656 years after creation. And just tracing back from what we have. There could be some in there in the middle, but to be honest with you, I, I, think, I think it could be very well 1,656, if that be the case. Then, now we know that um, this is like, let's say, 1,658 is, is at the time that um, Shem has this son, Arpachshad, two years after the flood. Um, Noah lived. If you take this genealogy and add up the numbers with what we have here, Noah lived until Terah, and Terah is the father of Abram. Okay? And I know we're getting a lot of names here, but it's important to, to know this. Because it starts taking you back into a situation where people had the truth. They had people like Noah as preachers. Noah lived to be over 900 years, right? The flood, uh, 600 years. Okay. He was 600 years when the flood came. He lived at over 300 years of the impact of preaching from Noah, the righteous one who had been on the boat, plus Shem, Ham, and Japheth, plus these guys right here, almost all of them are living. Uh, Shem is living through all the way up to the time of Terah. Matter of fact, if we add these numbers with what we've been given, he would have lived past the time of Terah, the father of of Abram. Are you catching that? And you're saying, wow, how many thousands of years was that? Well, it wasn't thousands of years. We're, we're talking hundreds of years here. And if we really want to get technical, we can, we can march that down, but that, that's not the point. But Terah is the father of Abram. Shem is going to live all the time, all the way up to even Abram. Now that's incredible. He witnessed that. As a matter of fact, Noah lived almost to the time of Abram. Maybe not quite. So if we're taking that way, we're going, wow. Um, that is why Calvin said the narration of history should have inspired men. People like Noah, Shem. People should be living in fear and terror because it's almost like the appearance of God there Himself. They're not saying, he's not saying that Noah and Shem is uh, the presence of God, but in another sense, they experienced the presence of God and uh, <laughs> you know, Noah talked with God. Or God talked with Noah, right? And so when you think about that, I think that is really amazing. The people are getting it firsthand of uh, the gospel and, and, and the truth. There are a couple of names here. Uh, Shelah, found in verse 12. Arpachshad, that's the son of Shem, lives 35 years, became the father of Shelah. Arpachshad lived 403 years. Now you'll notice that their ages are going to become less and less. We're after the flood now. They were living 600, 800, 900 years plus, right? 
And now we're going to see those numbers dwindle. But Noah and Shem, numbers there as far as their living is going to be very high. And they're great witnesses of the goat. But Shelah and Eber, Shelah lived 30 years, became the father of Eber. Or think of Hebrew that came from that name. Did you know that Shelah and Eber would have outlived Abram? Now that's interesting. We're only talking a few hundred years here, but we know how long they lived. And we know when Abram came about, we know he was around 2000 B.C. And so they're within that time period. I think that to be rather incredible. And that would make an impact. Noah, uh, I think this is another thing that Calvin said, Noah would contend in every way for the maintenance of God's glory. He severely... Catch these two words. These are not my words. This is Calvin's words. He severely fulminated against the apostasy of his descendants. (laughs) That means uh, anything that would have come up against God's truth and His glory, He would have been furious about. Right? Right? Noah was a righteous man. He knew what truth was. He was not going to just say, okay, it's alright, you guys do whatever you want. Now, he's going to preach righteousness, wasn't he? He was a preacher of righteousness. So, he severely fulminated against the apostasy. So, we look back, we look at the genealogies, and we notice the longevity of people's lives start decreasing. The aging process starts speeding up. Uh, let's just read through here. We, we read verse 12. Our Paxod lived 35 years, came the father of Shelah. He lived uh, to the time of Abram. And our Paxod lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah. After he and the father of Shelah. And he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. Hebrew. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber. And he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. That's a significant name. We saw that name earlier in chapter 10, right? Peleg is dealing with uh, the dispersion. Uh, and that's what his name uh, meant. And so it's possible that he lived right during that time or was born in that year that that happened. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg and he had other sons and daughters. So they're living somewhere around 400 and some odd years. Let's see if it starts dropping. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years. Now it's dropping. 209 years. Why? Well, he was just a young kid. 209 years after he became the father of Ru and he had other sons and daughters. So they're just naming one. They have other sons and have other daughters. They're multiplying. The world is multiplying very quickly, right? Ru lived 32 years. That's whenever he became father and became the father of Serug. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug. So 207 plus 32, 200 and what? 39? And he had other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years became the father of Nahor. Seru lived 200 years. So he lived to be 230 years. So the 900, 800, 600 really has gone down to 400 and now it's 200 and something. 
And he had other sons and daughters. 24, Nahor lived 29 years, came the father of Terah, and that's a key name. That's the father of Abram. And Nahor lived 119 years after he came the father of Terah. So 119 plus the 29, uh, 148. And he had other sons and daughters. You'll notice that. So they have a lot of other kids. Who knows how many? It doesn't say. But they have other children. Now we get into Terah. We've already gotten to almost the time of Abram now. And Noah and Shem are living during this time along with Shem's son, Arphaxad, and, and, and right on down the line. Terah lived 70 years, came the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So there's 70 years when he has these three sons. Now, it does mention Abram first. But I do want to tell you that that doesn't mean he's the oldest. You would think it would be. But sometimes it's because he is the most significant. We find out that it fits in better according to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 that um, Abram probably wasn't born until 130 years old as far as Terah is concerned. Because Abram was 75 years old when his father died and he lived to be 205. Matter of fact, let's turn to Acts 7 just for a moment. This is where Stephen kind of helps us out here. It seems like there's a contradiction in Scripture, but it's not. Verse 1, Stephen was giving an address. The high priest said all these things. So, and he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. Look, look where he starts off with. I, I like this. He's going to start off with the father of, of the Israelites. right? The, the father uh, of the Hebrews. Hear me, brethren, fathers. And don't you like the way that it starts off with? The God of glory. That's the way everything should start, right? And that's how Stephen starts his message. The God of glory, and just as a matter of fact, this is the way it was. Matter of fact, I think it must have been a, a glorious appearing, however it was that God spoke to Abram. I don't, you know, was there any visible aspect? Well, we're not really told how all this happened, but we know that God spoke to him. That's pretty glorious, isn't it? I can't think of anything more glorious than that. If God came to you and spoke to you directly like He did to Abram, right? The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died... God had him moved to the country in which you're now living. So after his father, Terah, died in Haran, and his father was 205 years old when he died, you can subtract 75 years, as you'll see that in another text, and that takes it down to, he was 130 when he had Abraham, or Abram. So that, I don't know if that helps much or not, but... um, we know that uh, people are living a little bit less. And, you know, in a lot of senses, I think that would be a blessing because seeing all the sin that's happening, and it is, it's a pagan world, 
even among the, the, the Semites, and we notice that because they were worshipping idols. When God came to Abram, that's what his family was doing. And there are verses to support that. I'm going to show that later, but um, the, uh, there's, there's an account that starts with Shem, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. And then you have in verse 27, now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. So he describes that because Lot is going to be traveling with Abram someday. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah. So Haran is a son of Terah and his father outlived him. And so Lot then is taken care of by his uncle there. Um, Terah in the land of his birth and Ur of the Chaldeans. Then it says, Abram in verse 29, And Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Sarai was barren, and she had no child. That's significant. She was barren. People were living at a long age, but the key point here, but they're, they're living less. And of course, Abram is going to live 175, and it's just going to go down from there. But uh, I got a feeling... You know, it's, it's kind of interesting that you have one here, Terah, living to be 130 and having Abram, if that be the case. And, and Abram has a son at, uh, what, 100 years old? Uh, but we know in, um, elsewhere, we see in the New Testament that he was considered as, as dead as far as his loins were concerned, producing children. And, and in this sense, Sarai was barren. She had no child. She was barren. I mean, there was no way that she, she could have kids. That, that's just the way it was. It was going to take a miracle for her to have that. So that, that's a key, key one right there. We, we know about that, but that's where that comes into place. So Peleg was like 100, 101 years. Uh, he was born 101 years after the flood. So between the flood and the Tower of Babel, you have 100 years. My, how many people can you get in 100 years? A few hundred? Maybe a few thousand? Well, even if you had just a few thousand. Or let's say you only had an 8% growth rate. I think it's been stated and, and, and done and as small as, uh, as we can break it down here. There would be 900 to 1,000 people. Well, in 100 years, I would tend to think with all those sons and daughters are going, you're going to have more than an 8% growth rate. I think you're going to have... Not only hundreds, but I think you're going to have thousands. Would that be enough to build a tower in a city? Absolutely. So some people say, well, see, that, there's no way that could, this could have just been a hundred years because they had to build this city. All these great cities were coming up and everything. And if you only have a few hundred people, how's that going to happen? Well, how are they coming uh, with the thought of just a few hundred people? The, I'm thinking multiple thousands at least, and that's keeping it at a low level. I, I mean, that's... That's within reason, isn't it? So, anyway, that's why some people will say that. But if you have a 500% increase all the way to the time of Abram, you're going to have millions of people. Hundreds of millions of people. Maybe 300 million people by the time of Abram. And that's with numbers that are not fantastically high. Now, Genesis 12.1. We we probably didn't really finish. Let's let's go ahead and, and... 
Where are we at? Verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. They went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. God, in His Word, to show that He's not mistaken or people will... um, say, well, you know, we're not given enough information. We're getting uh, a lot of detail. Uh, he's naming sons, grandsons, daughter-in-laws. He's mentioning cities and, and uh, evidences of these have now come up. Ur of the Chaldeans. I mean, this is historically accurate. Canaan. Uh, they go as far as Haran. They settle there. The days of Terah were 205 years. And he died in Haran. That's as far as he went. He didn't get to go into uh, Canaan. Now, when we get into chapter 12, and, and all we're doing is taking a verse or so, just to show where all of this, what we've learned so far, is leading up to a major portion. And this is kind of a dividing line. Chapter 12 now, through the rest of Genesis, is going to be an account of basically Abraham. Abraham, outside of Jesus Christ, plays maybe the most important role or person in the Bible. If you just take it as far as chapters are concerned. How many chapters have we gone through before we get really introduced to the covenant that God makes with Abram? Eleven chapters. Eleven chapters. A lot of detail. A lot of things where you kind of fill in the blanks. Could this have happened? That's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but uh, more than anybody else will know. Nobody else has that kind of history. Now, 14 chapters are given to Abraham. I think that's rather significant to have 14 chapters about his life. He was a man of faith. And you look in uh, Hebrews 11, Abraham, Abraham was a man of faith. He's in the hall of faith there. Uh, that makes him a giant in Scripture. The, the Hall of Faith. Uh, you think of Moses, he was a lawgiver, played a key role. You think of David, a great king. Uh, you think of Elijah, a great prophet. Uh, men of God who played great roles. God gave them uh, great opportunities. Daniel was a, a tremendous statesman. And you keep on thinking about all that God had given and worked through so many of these different men. But Abram is considered to the Jewish people and and even to us, a great example. And Paul uses him, whether it be in Romans or Galatians, as the man of faith. The man of faith. Romans 4, as he uses an illustration. Romans 4 says that he was... Romans 3 introduces justification by faith. Right? The call of the Reformation. Right? And he uses Abraham. Then he uses the great King David. And he shows faith and it shows justification because of that. Um, He was also called a friend of God. Three times in Scripture. Abram Abram was a friend of God. In Galatians we learn that we have faith. If we're believers, we have the faith just like Abraham. And if, if we are people of faith, which we do, we have the same faith that Abraham did. If we have that, then we are also known as friends of God. How about children of God? 
That's even better, isn't it? A friend of God, the children of God. We can be what Abraham was. What we are. There was nothing in Abraham. The family that he was from, and probably he did the same thing, that family worshipped idols. God came down and did this miraculous thing to a man who was an idolatrous family. Look in Joshua 24. And this is encouraging to us. You can say, well, I wish I had the faith of Abraham. My, what a giant he was. I, I can't believe like Abraham did. Well, the thing is, Abraham was pretty weak. Matter of fact, he was really nothing. According to Romans, he was nothing. God is everything, right? But in Joshua 24, look at this, in verses 2 and 3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Don't you like that? Thus says the Lord. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah. Namely Terah. We're talking about Terah tonight, right? The father of Abraham, Joshua says. They knew their history, didn't they? And the father of Nahor. And this is Nahor, his son. There was a Nahor before that, but this is Nahor's son. And they served other gods. Wow. That's a loadful. Verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Now he says, I I took Abraham. He's your father. Go to verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. I would say that's pretty good, right? Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now this is Joshua. Uh, From where we're at in Abraham's time, let's say Joshua's around, let's just say 1500, it's a round figure. 1,500, 1,400, somewhere in that area, okay? I like to have uh, like increments of 500 years to put in a timeline, to get an idea you know, in my head, and that's how I can go from you know, backwards or forward. Abraham, 2000 B.C. Um, Moses, 1500 B.C. And that would be Joshua. And then 1000 B.C., you have David, right? Then around 600, 500, you you know, and before that you have prophets and such. Anyway, Joshua tells it very clearly here that they were idol worshippers. You look in Genesis 31. Years later, after where we've been in Genesis. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob. Jacob will later be named Israel, the twelve tribes, right? Well, it started off with him taking off, and where did he go? He went to the land of his fathers, he went to Haran, and that's where he was going to take a wife. And so he was related to uh, this Laban, uh, Jacob was a deceiver. Laban's a deceiver. He met his match. 
We ought to know the story. I don't have time to tell it all. But we know that uh, Jacob says to his wives, you know, we're, we're getting out of here. Laban was around. He took off. Uh, you know, he had his livestock. And But what's interesting here is that one of his wives, which happens to be Rachel, takes an idol with her to show you that that idolatry is still going on. They actually had idols. Look in chapter 31, verse 30. Now, you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Now, who's speaking here? This is Laban. He says, why did you steal my gods? As he's speaking to to Jacob. Then Jacob replied to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. Whatever it is and whatever is yours, you take it. It's yours. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. All right? Keep going. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and to Leah's tent. He's checking this out. He's going to get everything that's, that's his. And of the two maids, but he did not find them. He really wants those idols. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and she sat on them. Well, she's a pretty good deceiver too. Might have learned that from who? Laban and <laughs> Jacob. And Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. And you can figure that out for yourselves. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. This is the wife of the great man of faith, Abraham. And uh, she's packed the idols and takes them along. That's the kind of situation that's going on. Oh, oh Jacob, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. First, I, I knew I'd get names messed up. Anyway, we're about at the end. What's all this got to do with anything? Well, for one thing, we know that God spoke to Noah. And now, in Genesis 12, God is speaking again. And he says, Now the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Abram. And this is Abram who is living in an idolatrous country, idolatrous city. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did you notice something that I kept emphasizing? I will. Do you remember the people back at Babel? They didn't have God in it and they were building their city. This is the city of God. This is the people of God that that He's doing here. Um, So, uh, um, Genesis 12 here is telling about what God is going to do. This is God's plans. Um, Now, two important facts kind of finish this off about the call of Abram number one he had to make a decision to separate from his past and we're talking about God saying go forth from this country get out of this country 
Get away from your relatives. Not only get away from your relatives, but get away from your father's house. Uh, uh, you know, this is an absolute break, and I want you to go to a, a total different land, which you don't even know where it is. And I want you to go. Now, to leave your father's house is a pretty desperate thing to do if God is not telling you to do that. You have the pleasant countryside of Ur. It's beautiful. It's a a land that's very luxuriant. Uh, It has two great rivers in the area. The soil is rich. They grow corn there. They have date palms. (laughs) Beautiful. Crops. Abundant apples and grapes at this time. Pomegranates. Can you imagine the tea they must have had with that pomegranate tea? It's a great city. Civilized. Even had a library. A great library. But it was idolatrous and it was wicked. And God says, I want you to get out. I want you to separate. He's going to have to leave these people. This is inconvenient. It's difficult. It's very dangerous. And God is requiring Abe to sojourn among the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are wicked. Matter of fact, the Canaanites are cursed. And he's telling him, eventually, that's where he's going to go, isn't it? So when they got to Haran, they would have found another great city located there on an important trade route. And so, alright, it's pretty good here. Um, Many get to Haran, but they fall short of Canaan. Don't quite get there. Not far from the kingdom of God. But they don't go all the way. But God's going to make sure that He does. God doesn't take cruel pleasure in troubling His servants. Even though if you... Look at this. Has He told you to get out of your country? Has He told you to leave your father's house? Has He told you to leave... Maybe in some, literally, maybe, but um, uh, to, to to actually leave everything that's dear to you, everything that you enjoy and has God ever told you to get away from that? Uh, maybe in some circumstances, have you been in a really tough situation and terrible, and you're wondering how you can get out of all this? Well, He does try us, and He had tried the affections of Abraham because He wants spiritual growth out of him and he's going to have to separate him from that. It's going to have to be a a situation that he uh, is going to have to make haste and get out of there. But his haste wasn't in in a real hasteful way. God determined that he was going God was going to do this. Even though Abram was kind of slow, winds up in Iran, waits till his father dies, and then God tells him go. Can we commit our lives entirely to the Lord? That's a proof of obedience. Strangers. We are strangers in an alien... Uh, we're actually aliens in a... you know This is a foreign land to us. But we have promise. And there's a posterity, as far as Abraham is concerned, that he will take possession of it. His posterity will. He will not. He was a stranger there all the rest of his life. As was Isaac. As was Jacob. But eventually they went into the land... And another 400 years or so, 430 years, I think of the slavery. Number two, that's one thing, decisive separation. Number two, Abraham stopped along the way. And it shows that there was, we read Acts 7-2, where he you know, stopped at Haran, waits for, uh, waits for the God of glory to show up again, uh, apparently. 
we shouldn't allow ease or comfort to hinder us from following Christ. Is, is there a lesson from that? Do you remember in Luke 9, and, and I need to, to stop with this, in, in Luke 9, there are three illustrations here, I think, that are quite the calling to all of us when it comes to following Christ. And when we go through our everyday struggles and trials and everyday living, just remember that God loves us and has mercy and, 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 and Christ and He uh, uh, and grace, has mercy and grace. And He's not going to ask us to do anything that we're not equipped with. He has something in mind. In Luke 9.23, turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. What? Tenth? That's not it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yes, I had the same Bible almost. And He was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake, he is the one who will save it. That is discipleship. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 60. But He said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim elsewhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, Well, thank the Lord that God had chosen him and he uh, told him again what he needed to do. Uh, He will not let us rest anywhere short of Canaan. We will go. And he will repeat his calls. If He's started a good work in you, it will be finished, will it not? He will do that. He might have been a prosperous person. He was, an, he was part of an idol, uh, idolatrous worshiping family. Uh, but He wouldn't have been known to history. And He wouldn't have been part of God's great work and salvation. I mean, man, I mean, this is the example of justification by faith. It was all God's initiating action. I will. This is God doing this. Did Abraham choose this? <laughs> no. Where was he at? God tells him to leave, go to a new land, and by the way, I will bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. And may we take lessons out of this book of Genesis. May it be impacting on our lives too. And may it affect our witness to a culture that is lost and has no idea what this book is about. And that we can bring forth truth again, uh, starting right at the very foundation and before the foundation of the world, starting with God and then showing where man is at. In Jesus' name, amen.